Hey guys, welcome to episode number 49 of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. This is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach. And in today's episode, you're going to hear from Corey Schlesinger, who is a strength and conditioning coach at Stanford University, working primarily with basketball, which is obviously one of the premier basketball programs in uh, college sport in the USA. So obviously one of the best uh, college basketball programs in the world. Corey is a member of that special club of people that I randomly started talking to on the internet. Um, we exchanged some ideas over um, a private message on Instagram and when we got talking and you know, I picked up on what he was doing. I was really impressed with it, really intrigued by uh, some of his ideas and, and the rationale behind it. So for that reason, I wanted to get him onto the podcast and, and pick his brains all about his career and the great work that he's doing at Stanford. So we began the conversation talking about how he came up as a, as a college basketball player Uh, Much like um, myself, he realized he wasn't going to be a pro, so he made the transition to being a strength and conditioning coach where he started out at Santa Clara, then University of Alabama at Birmingham, eventually moved to where he is in Stanford, where he's now in his second year in the program. Now, you know, I've done a couple of episodes with guys that work in basketball before uh, and also uh, baseball in Bob Alejo. And one of the major problems of working in a sport like that is the extremely condensed competition calendar. There are games nearly every day and it can be very, very difficult as a strength and conditioning coach to find time in the schedule to add in intense training. So we talked a little bit about how Corey gets around that with a micro-dosing protocol, small 15 to 20 minute sessions spaced out throughout the week. We also touched on how this ties into the, the new coaches blue collar work ethic and how he's trying to instill a culture of hard training hard work amongst the squad now if you look at Corey's instagram which i'll link to in the bio for this podcast you'll notice that his training is really three-dimensional his guys train in all three planes of motion one leg two leg various different implements dumbbells barbells kettlebells and even fat bells Uh, google those if you've never heard of them before so i just wanted to understand the rationale for this look at which exercises are being selected and how these flow in the program throughout the year Two other things that you'll notice from looking at Corey's work is a big use of FRC, functional range conditioning, which is similar to PNF, but with additional isometrics and some new techniques thrown in that has shown really promising results for him. I'm looking at it myself and I wanted to delve a little bit deeper into his experiences of that. And another thing that he does is tumbling and body control exercises. I think either in conversation in this podcast or in emails that we exchanged, uh, Corey basically said, you know, we have guys with us for four years and what we do is, is phys ed. We're trying to teach our kids to move and it can be even more difficult with guys that are, you know, six foot eight, six foot ten or even taller, uh, teaching them to control their bodies and mitigate for injury risk. So we discussed uh, the development of that program at Stanford Basketball and what parallels may be able to be drawn between basketball and rugby or how you can use that with your own athletes. And lastly, a consistent theme that appeared throughout this conversation was looking at the numbers as a coach versus concentrating on what a coach may really believe is the most important thing to pursue in the program. How you strike a balance between those two to justify your job to the administrators and the people paying your wages, but allowing yourself to have the greatest impact possible that might not be able to be measured by those numbers. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast and you want to check out more information like it, be sure to check out the Rugby Strength Coach community. This is an exclusive members website that I've created just for coaches and it offers a unique combination of video lectures, online discussion and career advice that's going to help you to take your coaching career to the next level. Each month we offer a 60 minute video lecture from a strength and conditioning coach working at the elite or professional level of sport on a topic that is dear to their heart. This is not just the stuff that you get taught that matters when you do your accreditation, your UKSCA or your degree. This is the stuff that keeps elite level coaches up at night, 
that really matters in their job in the real world. We've got presentations from guys that work in the NFL, professional soccer, elite level track and field, uh, the NRL in Australia and New Zealand, international rugby, professional cycling, the list goes on. We have over 30 hours of video lectures and the list is growing all the time and you will get access to all of these when you sign up to become a member of the Rugby Strength Coach community. Not only this, but you're going to get access to the online discussion forum. We have hundreds of members from all over the world working at the very, very top of the game all the way down to novice coaches. Here, you're going to be able to discuss every strength and conditioning topic under the sun, to ask questions and get answers and share resources. Lastly, we also offer a special area of the forum dedicated to career development. Here, you're going to be able to get advice from coaches who have been there, done it, brought the t-shirt and worked at the highest level of the industry. Here, you're going to get advice and all the things you need to do to build the career that you want, including networking, CV writing, interview prep and climbing the ladder. So if that sounds good to you and you'd like to try it out, just go to rugbystrengthcoach.com slash members and enter the code word trial. This is going to allow you to sign up for 24 hours at the price of just one pound. If you like it, keep it and you can sign up to become a regular member. If you don't, just get in contact with us, cancel it. There's no strings attached. If you don't like it and it's not for you, no problem. But for now, sit back and enjoy the podcast. Corey, how's it going? Uh, going well, man. Appreciate you having me on. Man, I appreciate you uh, you putting up with me, trying to reschedule with you like 10 friggin' times. We, we finally got around to it, so it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on. Hey, no worries, man. I'm pumped to be on. Cool. So would you uh, just take a minute to kind of tell people who you are and, and what you do? Yeah, so uh, my name is Corey Schlesinger. I'm the director of athletic performance for the men's basketball team at Stanford University. Um, and that's about it, really. I'm just an overqualified meathead who absolutely loves basketball. Living the dream on the West Coast. <laughs> oh, man. California is a beautiful place to be, man. But um, where are you from originally and, and how did you kind of end up where you are now? So um, I'm from the mountains of Virginia. So uh, Is that cold country? Cold country, yes. Very close. Very close. Like I'm right on the state line of North Carolina, close to Kentucky, close to Tennessee. So right where cold country is. West Virginia, uh, very close. So, you know, I, I guess you can say I'm a hillbilly. Uh, <laughs> but I come from a small town, uh, more cows than people, one stoplight town, and I have no idea how I came from that to work at the world's most prestigious university at Stanford. <laughs> um, it's, it's a pretty cool story, but, um, yeah, so, uh, initially I, uh, got, I got an interest in basketball at a young age. Um, I don't know if you've ever known it or have seen this, but you know, like the and one mixtape, like all the flashy, Hell yeah. <laughs> that's what I was all about. Like, I didn't even care about the game of basketball. I just wanted to handle the rock like that. Like I just cared about embarrassing people. And like, that's how I developed the love for the game of basketball. And, uh, so some, uh, some old white dude with a cane saw me play one day and, uh, in high school and said, Hey, do you want to come to uh, Berea college and play basketball? And so, you know, I didn't really think that was going to be my route, um, advancing my education. But, you know, once once my mom caught wind of that, she's like, no, son, you're, you're going to college. Yeah, put the so, foot down. Uh, yeah. So they gave me you know, a free education. And, um, you know, it's obviously great to have a, a, a scholarship to further my education. But more importantly, that that job or excuse me, that uh, that schooling uh, allowed me to do internships and they'd actually pay for me to go do these internships, which was still like to this day, the best part about that school. So, uh, I started the strength and conditioning profession, if you will, as an intern at Wake Forest university under Ethan Reeve. Uh -huh. And then uh -huh. from, from that point, I just kept jumping around internships. Uh, I was at Carolina with Jonas Serration, 
who I owe a lot of credit to with everything I do. Um, after that, I was uh, getting my master's at Campbell University, where I was working with six sports and still helping out up uh, up in Chapel Hill. And then I got an internship with the Olympic Training Center, working with combative and acrobative athletes. And for some reason, uh, I got the director's job at Santa Clara at the age of 24, which wow. you, know, you, you don't really get a, a director's job at a Division One school at that age. And uh, I don't know how I got it, but obviously I didn't turn that opportunity down. So that was my uh, my first experience on the left coast. And soon as I uh, finished a couple of years there, I got a call from one of the head or the assistant coaches uh, when I was at Carolina, and he took the job at UAB. And so he remembered me and called me up and said, "Hey, let's do this thing." And so from that point, uh, we won a couple of championships, and now we're at Stanford University going into our second season. So he he moved from UAB to Stanford and, and kind of took the team with him. You know, I was I was very honored that I was that he called me into his office and asked me to come with him. So you know, like it's support staff, you know, sometimes it gets a little shaky. You know, it's it's very situational. Um, but I was fortunate enough that uh, we could make it happen, and that he wanted me to help him with his uh, hopefully uh, victorious season this year um, over at Stanford. So. You know, w- without being uh, rude to the previous kind of institution or the, the previous team, uh, what was the situation on the ground like when you arrived as a performance staff? And what kind of steps have you taken to build that team and build that department in, in the is it, you know, one season that you've had already? And, and what visions do you have for the future? Yeah, so when we step foot on campus, I mean, I- I'll be honest with you, the kids are tremendous. And, and that's what made our transition so much easier than what I can imagine going through at other schools. Uh, I mean, it's just high-end kids. Like, that's the best way to put it. Uh, they're unbelievably respectful. And, you know, the, the, the group we had was a pretty blue-collar group. You know, they knew how to work hard and, and they understand a process. And so from day one, you know, I, I knew how important training was to our program because they had a, a tremendous amount of injuries in the in the past eight years. Uh-huh. And so, I mean, it was astronomical, like stress fractures and hip surgeries. And I was like, wow, this is it's it's very abnormal, especially in basketball. And so we knew that we were uh, how should I say this? We were um, given a bunch of kids that were just beat up. And I mean, these are 18 to 22 year old kids who've had multiple hip surgeries, who've had season ending injuries constantly. And so it's, it's tough to break a kid at that age as well. I mean, a hundred percent, you know, so we, we actually had to, it's almost like we were training the San Antonio Spurs, you know, yeah. <laughs> the 22 year olds, you know? And so we had to really manage loads and, and understood what was important, what was not important. And so it was a very minimalist approach. Um, and so developing what we, uh, or the, the first steps that we took in developing the culture there was, the, and the one thing that I love about my coach so much is he's, all he is is blue collar in every aspect of his life. Like he, he works hard. And so that's where we obviously, uh, we see eye to eye because of our backgrounds. But uh, for me, I look at it as, you know, if we practice every day, then and we think that's important we think basketball is important then you know physical and mental development is obviously just as important especially with that particular group we had so uh, we pretty much drew the line in the sand from day one and said hey you know what every time our feet hit the basketball court we're also going to lift weights and so 
we really looked at it from you know a cultural standpoint like hey man we 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 are investing into this like this is we find value in this and so uh, and it was also a way to get rid of warm-ups. I mean, geez, man, how, how much, coach, let me ask you a serious question. How much do you hate doing pre-practice warm-ups? Cause it's, you can't, you can only do the same thing. It's development over, time over. for the interns, brother. Like we, we, uh, we just rotate through, through guys because if, if you're bored of it, that my opinion is if you're bored of it, they are definitely bored of it. Exactly. And so my <laughs> sport coaches dreaded watching me doing it. I dreaded doing it. The kids definitely didn't want to do it. And so, you know, as far as convincing my staff, that wasn't hard, you know, because my staff and I'm very fortunate to have a staff like this, but they're, they're very invested in me and they believe in what I believe in. And so they, they let me roll with it. And I said, Hey coach, like, we're just going to train every day before practice. It's going to be in small sessions, but we're going to get in, we're going to get out and then they're going to hit the court ready to go. What do you think? Corey, let's do it. And so I'm like, all right. So we rolled with it. And from that point, uh, we, we developed some pretty unique strategies as far as, uh, how, how we're programming our, our list, well, program, whatever that means. Um, but as far as how we're strategizing our training sessions, technical, tactical, as well as uh, with our development. Well, let's, let's, let's jump in a little bit about the, the technical, tactical stuff. Uh, what, what degree of influence are you able to have over the, those kind of sessions? And how are you looking to progress those based on where you are in the competition or, or preparation schedule, for example? Right. So I, I would say the best place to start is as soon as season ends. So when season ends, uh, we're pretty much all technical session. Yeah. You know, so the as far as the NCAA rules are, are, um, are, you're only the sport coaches are only allowed two hours of exposure to the athletes a week. And so from that, that point, yeah, that little. Wow. And so for me, it, I get eight. So, you know, I get the role. How <laughs> so much like, how much should that be the other way around? Hey. I mean, it's a good question because the kids that I have, I mean, they're just so underdeveloped. I mean, and of course, they're six eight, six nine, six ten. It's even magnified even more so. Yeah. You know, so development, especially in a controlled setting, is so important. But and because of how we, I mean, we have such a large talent pool in the states for basketball. I mean, they're pretty good basketball players. Let's just be honest. You know, like, uh, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. In the grand scheme around the world, they're, they're pretty good, especially for their age groups. So now, do they need fundamentals? And yes, 100%. But as far as like, man, they they put so much gas in the tank for basketball that they don't even develop. And so I spend years two, years three, sometimes even years four with some of these guys where they stay in the development stage. Okay. Um, okay. And it's because they have such structural issues. And so it's more important for them to be available to play the game of basketball and be resilient and durable enough to withstand a season more so than actually doing performance. Okay. But anyways, uh, yeah, going, moving forward. Uh, so the technical sessions, it's all in the coach's hands. Uh, whatever they find is important for those individual uh, athletes at that time, they're running through with them. And then obviously I'm doing the physical development on the back end. Uh, once we roll into uh, – and that, that goes all the way through summer – and then now we're in the preseason. Now preseason, it's 20 hours. Okay, so uh, the coaches get uh, we're pretty much practicing anywhere between two to three hours a day. And as of right now, we're splitting those sessions up into two. Uh, the morning session will be tactical, which before that we'll be doing our our uh, small lift. And then in the afternoon, we'll be breaking down maybe some more tactical aspects, um, but very low speed, so like low uh, threshold, if you will. Yep. And yep. Uh, and more technical, so that we'll get some shooting in. 
or more skill development. And so we'll keep breaking up those sessions um, until we get into actual competition. So with our competition, we'll have uh, like a closed door scrimmage of, against a university. Uh, then we'll have a exhibition and then we'll roll right into season. And so once we get into season, of course, uh, it's a lot more calm than preseason because preseason, I mean, you're trying to put in a new offense, a new defense. You're trying to figure out your new personnel. Uh, so there's a lot. Let's just say this. There's a lot of reps put up yeah, <laughs> and yeah. find out what you're what you're looking for from a tactical standpoint. Is is it the you know, when, when you're devising a session, so for example, you're going to sit down and either the day before or the morning of the session and the coach is going to say to you, here are the, the, the technical, tactical, or even psychological objectives that we want to take from this phase of the season or this particular session. And then are you trying to work around that as the physical preparation coach to try and achieve your physical goals in line with that? So for example, if it's say, you know, I'm going to show my um, uh, lack of experience in basketball, but say, oh, we're going to, we're going to work on layups and you you want to achieve lactate threshold out of it are you going to provide guidelines for intensity and, and work rest distribution so that you can try and you know uh, come together with what you're trying to do man you're a lot you're right on the lines of, of james smith and I, and I like the way you're thinking right yeah I, I talk to james a lot <laughs> and from what i understand he's probably the most brilliant individual in our field which from what i understand and uh um I, I would say this. It is not done in any of basketball right now. And I, and I know that for a fact. Yeah. Um, what we do, we keep it way simpler than that because okay. I don't want to believe that I am an expert in basketball by any means. Even though I played, um, I also played at the lowest level. So, yeah. Like <laughs> um, me and rugby. Exactly. exactly. Like we, we, we love the sport, but we probably wasn't genetically uh, driven to, to excel in it. And so with that being said, um, our sessions, we keep it really, really simple, mainly uh, because, once again, all these kids are still under development. So um, our sessions are broken up, obviously, like we were talking about earlier, tactical to technical. And then we go from just a high-low principle. So we know if it's going to be a high day or not, and we know if it's going to be a low day. High day means there's going to be a lot of competition. Um, there's going to be high speeds, high cuts. Um, and then we know what a low day looks like. So we're going to keep it as simple as that from a high low. And then as far as what I'm doing in the weight room, if we're doing a high day, well, then it's going to be a high day in the weight room as well. And so we want to have those stresses obviously waving up and down and so that we're not chronically high all week. And then of course, obviously with acute to chronic, we don't want to run that up, run that score up if you will. But even, you know, if if you look at the, the vast majority of sports and teams having complementary stresses on the same day just trying to pay a little bit of attention to the intensity and, and the forces and speeds of what you're doing is still a massive improvement on the vast majority of what you see. Oh, hundred percent. It just blows your mind what you see in Western sport. It's not even close. You know, I mean, we're at least trying to match stresses. What you generally see is this random training mixed with random practice. Yeah. And so don't get me wrong, random practice. There's been a lot of research saying there's some positives to that, but random stimulus is, I don't know so much. Yeah. 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 What, what about the mental yeah. side? How, how do you guys approach that? As far as, I'll be honest with you, like some of these kids, like they're almost more mentally inclined than we are. Like, I mean, they're, they're, they're some special kids. And so as far as like mental training, uh, I mean, we've, we've, best way to answer that really is, I mean, it's our culture. Our culture is what really solidifies where our mentality or our mindset is. And I know that sounds kind of like cliche or, uh, but it, it's the group that we have. And so, you know, our, our culture is we're invested, tough and selfless. I mean, I know that's, it's going to sound a little hokey, but 
you know, our guys actually believe it. And as a staff, we believe it as well. And so when we're going into these mental sessions, I mean, it's more like, okay, if we're going to be, we're going to be more about cooling the engines down from a mental standpoint, more than revving it up because our practice intensities, I mean, it, they're already revved up. Yeah. So as far as our mental strategies, it's more just coming down. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, mainly it's like, we'll come into the weight room, uh, lights are off and we're doing some, uh, parasympathetic breathing or something like that. Yeah. Uh, just trying to cool the jets a little bit, but yeah, we're, we're not super technical with that to be a hundred percent honest with you because you know what? Like we really don't have to be, I know that sounds like a, um, a pretty, oh, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm with you all the way. You know, one thing I've yeah. written down in the last two years again and again is that culture trumps everything because I, I can't remember who I was talking to you, but about, you know, how there's a lot of mystique around elite level military units, like the, the, the SAS, the seals, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think, a major reason why they're so successful is they just spend so long getting rid of the people that that shouldn't be there. And then what you're left with is that culture where if you have a good enough culture, you don't have to worry about anything else because you've selected individuals who want to be there, who are going to motivate themselves, who are going to try and get better every day. And it's almost like if you solve that, everything else solves itself. Whereas you can throw money at a problem, but if you've got bad people and the, the objectives of the organization aren't streamlined or, or all pointing in the same direction. It's, it almost doesn't matter. Whereas if you have the culture, it's almost like nothing else matters. Yeah. I mean, like we can talk about mental toughness all day, but like toughness, number one, I don't know if you found an objective measurement for that, but if you have, let me know. But you know, to, I mean, to me, it, it kind of boils down to is I, I think in, in rugby and, and contact sports, we have a, a kind of a Hollywood perception of what mental toughness is but then if you if you look at elite level performers in combat sports you know i've just been in japan i started jujitsu just over a year ago what actually typifies that is clarity being calm being focused not getting yourself worked up and just doing the necessary things rather than the exciting things a hundred percent. That's where, like, of course, in American society, we look at toughness as oh, fighting through injuries and, you know, all the personifications like you talk about the Hollywood, if you will. But in reality, dude, if you're the coolest dude in the room during the most chaos, more than likely you're a pretty tough cat. Yeah. <laughs> now, talking about your, uh, you know, the physical stuff, you mentioned microdosing on on the morning of, uh, of practice. How how little is, is microdosing and how do you how do you progress with that throughout the year? Yeah, great question. Um, so our sessions last anywhere between 10, 10 to twenty minutes. Okay. Um, I, look, I look at our stresses. Uh, sometimes it gets to thirty minutes, um, but I mean we, we just got to look at stress as one big pitcher of water, right? And when we're in preseason, we all know where most of that stress is going. Oh, it's yeah. going to <laughs> it's going to the basketball court, right? And so I don't want to say that we're hitting a quote unquote maintenance phase because let's just be honest, these guys, the guys that I get are so underdeveloped that you know, them doing jumping jacks, it gets their vertical up an inch. You know? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. so, you know, we're, there's always development. There's always quote unquote progression, but um, it would be what you, what most people would consider a maintenance phase. Um, and so the level of intensities, you know, we'll rev them up once or twice a week. But all the other sessions are geared towards, you know, supportive lifts or accessory lifts, if you will, or things to just um, more of just like, uh, how should I say this? 
uh, just keeping the engine revving if, or uh, running. Yeah. And so yeah. um, now as we adapt to practice, then we start adding more volume and intensity. And then as we adapt to games and competition, then we add even more volume and intensity. And then at the end of conference or once we get into conference play, well, practice stimulus is down significantly because, well, obviously we already know what we're doing at that point. And we're doing a lot of video because we've already scouted the guys. So we're spending a lot more time in video uh, walking through technical, tactical aspects. And then so that leaves us a big tank for physical development. So when we're in our February, March, we're actually hitting the highest intensities that we hit pretty much in the entire year. That's and almost so, like, you know, you, you flip the regular script on its head. Exactly. You know, everybody talks about their numbers in summer. Who, who gives a shit about that? Like, yeah, it's not time. <laughs> you know, like, and it's, it, you see it all the time, you know, and you'll hear, oh yeah, we'll, we'll do our maintenance lift. Like I, I still don't understand what maintenance means because I mean, it, it's one or two things like you're adapting or you're not adapting. You're getting stronger and faster or you're getting weaker and slower. It's, it's tough to truly hold on. And so, you know, the first things that go away without training is power. And the second thing is strength. And then the last thing is cardiovascular fitness. Well, they're getting cardiovascular fitness from practice and it's going to be hard to lose that. In a big so way. The thing, in a- yeah, exactly. So the thing they're going to lose is strength and power. So, you know, at the end of the season where everybody's complaining about being, you know, whatever, overtrained or all these other aspects that are considered to not be in their control. Luckily, I have a great sports staff that understands that. And so our, our, our practice sessions are unbel- like way, way down. And so that allows me to, uh, quote unquote, get the guys awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you, you talked about pushing the guys real, real hard a couple of times a week and then kind of concentrating your efforts on other stuff for the, the other sessions distributed throughout the week would that be mm-hmm. like you know your your big lifts like the big three olympic lifting all those like real heavy sagittal multiple joint exercises are you because you know I've, I've written it down here and note it when you when you look at the stuff that you put out on social media i put 3d you train in all three planes of movement one leg two leg some real interesting stuff is that what you're choosing to dedicate your time to on the lower days Great question. To be honest with you, I just look at force is force. Okay. And yeah, force is force. So for instance, you know, obviously the engine lays in the sagittal plane, right? It's where you can lift the heaviest weight and move the fastest. We all can probably agree with that. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so all the other stuff, it's but that's where sport is, right? Especially in a game like basketball. We we live in transverse and we live in frontal plane. And so that's where I look at force is force. And I try to find as many variations and regressions to those big lifts as possible so that they can have maximal intent. And so what I mean by that is it's pretty simple. Like we'll do some things that are rotational or we'll do some things in the frontal plane that seem to be like, oh, okay, it's not as intensive. But for them it is because obviously it's hard to train there, right? Especially for those levers. So I look at it as, um, yeah, our big bang lifts. Yeah, we clean, we snatch, we squat, we deadlift, but we're always going to complex it with some type of, uh, some type of plyometric, right? We're always going to do something where it's complementary to that. Uh, but yeah, like you say, like we train in 3d. And so the days that we are getting closer to game day, well, it's probably going to be something more elastic and reactive. And so those are the things that we're doing, right? Some of the crazy things that you've probably seen on our social media. 
but as far as you know, you still got to you still got to go with the main ingredients. So when we're furthest away from the competition, that's where we're probably doing more of our maximal strength, where you're getting it through squats and deadlifts, um, or bench or uh, whatever you deem is important. And then when we get closer to competitions, it's more of our reactive and elastic movement patterns. Are you uh, are you paying attention to certain lifts at different times throughout the the, the four or five years? Because obviously, I'm, I'm guessing that you've got certain minimums that your guys have to hit for them to you know to be considered elite level in their sport but once you get to that point pushing it any further isn't necessarily going to get you transferred to the court is you, is your focus shifting from year to year or is it fairly consistent uh, for the whole squad oh man that's a great question it, it really depends on the cat you know because i have guys with such low training ages that some of those guys man they, they might not get to quote unquote minimum you know or yeah. minimal you know, they're, they're, they're dude, I'm telling you, it's just structurally trying to make them sound is a two to three year process. Yeah. And so yeah. as far as doing the cool shit, like it takes a long time just to get to there. And it's almost to the point where it's not even worth attempting. Yeah. You know, because and the, guys, the longer it takes you to get messed up, the longer it takes to fix. Right. It, exactly. You know, and then for me to actually get those loads or get those. Uh, adaptations that I'm chasing for, I'm probably taking way more out of the tank than they can even handle. Um, especially when you compound sport on top of it. Yeah. And so, you know, in basketball, like we all, this is the, the dichotomy, right? We're always looking at like, what's strong enough, man. I'll be honest with you. I've seen great basketball players, the best basketball players that are not, that are not strong at all. Yeah, I mean, it, it just is what it is. So you got to find what works for each individual. And that's where I'm very much more on the RT side. Like, don't get me wrong. Metrics are important. Um, they guide you to where you need to go and see if you're doing that. Like, I get that. But, I mean, dude, like, you're trying to get – you're trying to create adaptations for populations that haven't even been re- researched. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and 16- especially, you know, with those, with those like, body frames and – Oh, 100%. Like, you got femurs the size of damn electric poles, and, yeah. you know, you got them doing cleans and snatches. Like, you don't know what adaptations are taking place. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where, for me, it's much more the art side. And so uh, there's a lot of autonomy in our training. And I give them some guidelines. And then from that point, once we get to a certain trained state, you know, it's on them. Hey, got, hey what do you want to do today, man? This is our we get, this is our hip flexion day, okay? Like, we're, hey, we're squatting today. What kind of squat movement do you want to do? And so basically what they're telling me is probably the right answer. If they're saying, Corey, I want a goblet squat today. Corey, I want a safety squat bar today. Hell, I got some guys feel more comfortable zercher squatting. Who says zercher squatting? No one ever, right? But I got a few guys that are really, really tall that just needs that weight in their center of mass, and that's what makes them feel better. I'm like, hey, man, that's the lift we're doing. So... It's, it's much more individual, and it's a lot more on the autonomy of, of what they feel. And uh, I, I believe in that much more than I believe in, hey, we're training for these adaptations to hopefully elicit this somewhat ever response to increased performance. You know, it, there's too many other factors involved for that to be true, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, I spoke to, to Cameron Joss a few weeks ago, and he kind of said that he's, he's at the stage of his career now where he realizes maximum strength is almost like fire insurance. Like to oh, to think that you're going to have that direct transfer to the field of play and say, you know, that's what I did. It's, it's not realistic. Right. But what you are going to do is keep them healthy enough to stay on the field where they can do the sporting stuff, which will make the, the impact. 
for sure. And you got to think about the loads that they're creating in sport. I mean, that's enhancement in itself. I mean, dude, these guys are running at top speeds, jumping off one leg and landing in a rotational pattern. Like, you can't create that in the weight room. And if you try, you're going to fuck them up real quick. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to me oh, about – um, oh, dude, you can swear. Okay. <laughs> Talk to me about uh, FRC because I, I see you talk a little bit about with Jay, see some of the ideas that you're trying to implement. But I'll be completely honest. I have, I have no prior experience with it, no understanding. So I just want to try and, and get a little bit better of an understanding and how it fits into your program. Hey, no worries. Um, I, I've done a terrible job of talking about it in the, in the past. So I'm going to try to not to butcher it this time. But uh, we'll, we'll try to explain it like this. Okay, so take your typical bell-shaped curve. If you flex your arm, you flex your knee, you flex your hip, whatever, at 90-degree angle, that's probably where you have maximum strength. Can we all agree with that? Yeah. Okay, so basically what you're trying to do with FRC is widening the bell-shaped curve. So you're trying to take the top and make it wider. Okay. So okay. what you do is you train end ranges. And so when you're hitting these isometric holds or you're doing you know, the, the, the pails and rails – uh, what you're trying to do is allow a uh, greater degree of freedom. And so uh, just like any other isometric training, think of like PNF, for instance, right? You stretch, then you fight, then you get a new range of motion, right? Yeah. Same deal. It, it, nothing's changed. The only difference is it's maximal intensity. Like you are creating as much tension as possible. It's not whatever PNF standards are where you're like at 50, 60% tension. I'm not really sure. Um, but you're creating maximal tension and it's a way I've never seen quote unquote stretching done before. It's not even fair to call it stretching because you're not really doing that to the, uh, to the, to the musculature. It's, I look at it as it's joint training. And I've never seen anything like it before, but it's all backed up by 20 and 30 years of isometric research. And so when it came into my lap in those terms, I was like, oh, man, this makes a lot of sense. And then going through the course and spending uh, uh, like 30 or 35 minutes through a kin stretch course at the end of the, uh, the, the clinic, I mean, I'm, I can squat enough to look okay squatting in a platform right? As far as mobility and range of motion. Uh -huh. But at the end of the session, I was literally in a third world squat taking notes comfortably. And I'm like that, my hips never allowed myself to do that. And so I'm not saying, I'm not trying to sell, sell snake oil or I'm not trying to like hyperbole the situation by any means, but it literally worked that well for me in just that amount of time. So I'm not saying it's a parlor trick either, but it, it works. I mean, it really does. It allows you this greater degree of range of motion because you're just stronger in those positions. And so it just overrides the system and says, hey, man, it's OK to sit down here or it's OK to get that range and you're going to be safe. You know, mainly it's just pretty much your body saying, no, you can't go there because you haven't been there before. Uh, so this kind of would you say this is, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've spoken to, to other people that are, are you know, cleverer than me, physical therapists and such that say that the, the, the problem with. You know, quote unquote soft tissue techniques like rolling, Graston's, all that kind of stuff, is that you're convincing the central nervous system to permit more uh, range of movement. But then it's almost like you have to cement that. You have to teach the central nervous system to use it and, and say, let you know, let's hang on to this this new range. Would you say that something like FRC is a nice complement to that stuff to to teach you to cement it? I would say it's more like this, like all those other things that you listed, all those other modalities opens up the training window, if you will. Yep. 
Um, this kind of blows the walls out, in my opinion. Really? Like it's, okay. It's not opening a window. It's creating a, a new frontier. Like it's allowing you to stay. And that's where I think it's powerful because, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. You can't do a session and then all of a sudden come back the next day and expect to slam down right into that squat. Like a Baptist some, tent revival. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, but I've never felt so confident in a new range. And that's where I think it's really, really special is because, I mean, it's something you already own. It's just you've never been able to achieve it before. Uh, with all the other modalities, like you get down there. But it's like it, it feels kind of funky. It's like, oh, this is new, but this it's like it's not as stable. But yeah. with the FRC, like I feel rock solid. And that's where, you know, I see there's a lot of potential for it. And the greatest thing is it's it's based off of years and years of research that's already been proven correct. They just found a really, really cool way of explaining it and utilizing different methodologies as far as allowing that new uh, or th- whatever you're looking for. You can be as creative as you want. Like they give you they pretty much give you a palette. You still get to be the artist. I can still create a radiation however I want. I can still create, you know, pails and rails and cars and and have my leg lift up. You know, you can do all that cool stuff however you want. That's the beautiful thing about it. It's not a like a, a, a regiment that you have to stick to. You can be as creative as you want and still get an adaptation. What are those uh, those acronyms you just mentioned there? Rails, pails, and cars. So the controlled articulations, um, the, the pails and rails, pretty much it's like, okay, you're, you're putting pressure into the ground away and then you're pulling pressure into you. So it's like, it's like, uh, it's pretty simple. Just you're going away from the stress or you're pulling the stress closer to you. And so when you do those, it's just basically, you're just working both ends of the spectrum or the joint. So, so, you know, like end end range, outer range. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And is it, is a mixture in, in all sessions? Yeah. Uh, well, see, I didn't even know what I was doing because I just saw it on, you know, on social media and I'm like, oh, you know, I got a guy that can really benefit from this type of stuff. And so we went straight to cars. Right. So we went to the controlled articulations. And in reality, I need to do the, you know, the progressive and regressive stuff first. And so but even do even like skipping those steps, I still got an adaptation. Like He still got better range of motion. He still owned that range. It's just you know, you can't really mess it up. <laughs> That's the beautiful thing about it. Um, you can get really, really intensive. You're just going to be really, really sore. Um, now, obviously, I wouldn't do it, you know, prior to competition to like that full intensity. But, you know, you, you can you can place and plug this anywhere. You can create it in the warm up. You can it can actually be the training. It can be the cool down. It can be whatever you want it to be. And that's why I think it's so special is because it's so flexible. You know, kind of continuing that theme of, of three dimensions and, and three planes of motion, uh, one thing that you and I have talked a little bit about is the idea of training tumbling and, and body control with, with basketball athletes, um, which obviously to me makes a ton of sense. But how, how do you implement that? What does it fit into your training week and, and how does it progress? Uh, well, it's day one for us. I mean, day one, we're learning how to fall. We're learning what, what, that, what constitutes the falling. You know, it's the sport of basketball, I mean, obviously we're playing on a hardwood surface and we don't have any protection gear on. You know, all they have is jerseys. And so what you'll see is guys want to jump up in the air and they get hit and they'll do everything they can to stay on their feet. And, and a lot of strategies, you know, yeah, you want to stay on your feet, but probably the the most durable or the most reliable strategy to do is to actually fall. And so our guys just don't know how to do it. Their interactions with gravity are awful. 
Yeah. Uh, because they're so tall and in Western society, they're sitting or they're standing. They're sitting or they're standing. They don't really interact with the ground at all. And so, you know, like you, they lose all those childhood development strategies that they once had, um, you know, transitioning, rolling over from their stomach to their back, back to the stomach, lifting their head. Like it, it's crazy how bad their postures are because of the world they live in. They live in a world of like five, nine, five, ten, like myself. They don't like the world wasn't made for six, eight, six, ten. They spend their lives and, looking down. Oh, 100 percent. Like my posture's gotten better because I work with these guys. But <laughs> Their posture's definitely gotten worse. Yeah. And so it, it only made sense to me um, from a practical standpoint. Like, it wasn't any research or anything like that. Just, you know, the guy I was working with at, at Wake Forest when I was interning, the football uh, strength coach, Ethan, he, uh, I mean, he had 300, 400, or not 400, but 300 pound dudes doing cartwheels and tumbling. And I'm like, why, why are those guys doing that? Like, it looked crazy to me at the time. But he's like, Corey, it's just calisthenics, it's just athleticism. It's, you know, they follow every play. They need to, you know, they need to know their body. I was like, man, that, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And then I, th- I was thinking, I'm like, dude, I can't even do this. So, you know, when no one was watching, I went out to the turf field later and started trying to do cartwheels with my opposite hand and trying to tumble. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, I'm going to wreck myself. And then I realized right, right there, I was like, dude, I'm not an athlete. Like, I, this is a part of just being an athlete. And so I've carried that on with me ever since I was 19 years old. You know, the best way someone's put it to me, which is uh, uh, Tom Farrow, who's a great coach. He's uh, just just on a side note, he how's this for the start to his business? He He's hosting monthly workshops and the first three speakers to his workshops was Dan Path, Buddy Morris and um, Carlo Buzicelli from uh, the Cuban uh, Athletics Federation. <laughs> wow, sorry about it. Jeez. Yeah, not bad, but you know, he's, he said to me, he said, if you're in a sport where you have to control so, or you're trying to manipulate your opponent's body, you have to be able to first control your own. Mm, love it. It's quite interesting. So how are you picking certain menus of activities that you're spreading throughout the week or is it just kind of like you're, uh, you're kind of throwing stuff at a wall and see what sticks? You know, I'll be honest with you. A lot of our stuff is throwing it on the wall and seeing what sticks. Like, I'll, I'll be 100% honest. It's a very um, shoot-from-the-hip system. And I know that sounds wild to say, but especially when I get them in the off season. Now in season, obviously we're a little bit more structured. But yeah. in the off season, when I first, for instance, when I first get guys, it's definitely shoot from the hip because I don't know what I'm dealing with. You can do all the screens you want, you can do all the testing you want, and it'll give you an idea. But until they actually move dynamically, you you have no idea what these guys are really capable of or not capable of. Yeah. And so you know, just learning how. Okay, do do a soldier crawl like where your stomach is on the ground and you're literally keeping as as much of your body surface on the ground as possible and transition from point A to point B. And the strategies that you see are wild. You're just like, man, I didn't even know a guy would want to move that way. And then you start asking deeper questions. Well, why are they moving that way? And so then you start advancing it more and more. Okay, now let's get, uh, you know, just let's just be on our hands and knees. Let's see what they do. Then let's just be on our hands and, and toes. Um, let's get them on their back. Let's do some shrimp crawls. Let's just see what kind of strategies they're putting in place to get from point A to point B. What is effective? What is ineffective? And why does that exist? And so to me, that is my movement screen. That is my, you know, functional movement or that is my uh, testing is seeing how these guys move in places that they're that's just very human or primal. I guess that's the, the fancy word primal movement patterns. But it's you know, it, it tells me so much more about their bodies, more so than I'll ever get from, you know, any testing measurements that I've seen. Yeah, that's the thing about, you know, testing in screens is just because you can doesn't mean you will when it comes to, to the crunch. 
hundred percent. Are you doing this stuff with uh, with the ATCs watching with the PTs, or is it just you and then you kind of relay that information back to the to the medical practitioners? Well, luckily, I have, and it's not always in this in in the case here in in Western sport, but I have an awesome ATC. Like he is, he is really, really awesome. So we, he's pretty much in the sessions. Like he watches weight training. Um, I'm watching what he's doing from you know a manual standpoint. Um, and so we're very much in cohesion. Um, even more so, the director of athletic training, his name's uh, Aton Gelber. Uh, a lot of the jujitsu stuff that you see us doing in the wrestling room, it all came from him. Okay. Like this, oh, I mean, I and I never thought, and this is going to sound really bad, but I never thought I would take training uh, advice from an ATC. Like, no offense to ATCs, but I, you know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't think I'd ever take training advice from them. But this dude, like, I mean, he's just the knowledge that he's possesses, and of course, his practical experience. I mean, this guy is. Uh, he was an, an alternate for Team Judo for his country. Uh, he was special. He was special forces. Like this dude's a he's a badass dude. And so um, I took a lot of the stuff that he did, and uh, and he was fortunate enough to show me some of the partner training that they do. And I was like, you know, what? this just makes sense. Like this is just basic athleticism. And this is the thing that, especially in, in basketball in America, it just doesn't exist. Like being able to do a a. a um, a what would you call it? like a piggyback like being able just to carry someone like you, the strategies you see some of these guys try to implement you just wonder why they, they how they even cross the street yeah much less <laughs> like jump off one foot at max speed you know it, it just blows your mind and so you know i use it just mainly to train them to be better humans and if i make them better humans then i think that will make them more durable um, and so that they can hopefully get to the point where we can actually train them to be better athletes. You know, we talked a little bit about numbers off off the call before we start recording. And, yeah. you know, a theme that I'm kind of getting from this conversation is, is that rightly so, there's a huge amount of emphasis placed on the in, intangibles in your program. So being able to control your body, you can't necessarily measure. And, you're not going to get a one RM for you know an obscure transverse plane lift and, and and culture and all that kind of stuff. Talk a little bit about how 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 do you kind of justify your existence? I guess is what I'm asking. When so much of what you're doing, because obviously we're in a culture where people want to justify their existence. Right. How do you how do you chase that important stuff when obviously you've got guys that want the numbers to back it up? Right. That's that's amazing point to bring up. We we live we live in this objective world where phys, anything that you do physically has to have a number to it. And and don't get me wrong, there, there is importance to that. Like I, like I you have to have some performance metrics in place. And as long as the, I look at it like this, as long as the needle is moving right. OK, so for instance, you know, like their rate of force development's going up. OK, great. If, you know, counter movement jump is going up, great. non cat whatever, you know, whatever metrics you're using, as long as they're going up, fantastic. But the question is, like, <laughs> how are you getting there? Right. With the athletes that I have, they're so like, like and I keep coming back to this. They're so underdeveloped, like they don't really know what training is. How do you know how training is going to affect them if they have such a low training age? Because everything works. And so that's what I come back to. Like, yeah, we just we kind of throw stuff on the wall. It's sound. It's it, it is sound. And there is a progression in my head, obviously. But I mean, you'd be surprised what crazy amounts of force these guys create. But how they create it, 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 it will blow your mind. 
And so I could validate some counter movement jumps and I could be like, oh man, yeah, we did this. And all of a sudden they're jumping higher, but I want to know how they're absorbing that force too. Right. And, and, that, and that's where you see with just your coach's eye, right? Like, you know, what smooth transitions are, you know, if they're looking a lot more, uh, sound, like a lot more rhythmic, a lot smoother in their transitions, um, just even where their body positions are, like you can physically see that. Now, as far as how you justify it, <laughs> luckily I'm in a system where our coaches, Hey, Corey, we trust what you do, do what you do. Now, for me, I just look at any of the testing metrics or the performance metrics that we use. I use it mainly just to see from a readiness standpoint. I look at, okay, like, look, is there an accumulation going on? Are numbers going down? If they are, we need to reevaluate. But until then, <laughs> what's there to reevaluate? Uh, they're, they're still like baby giraffes. <laughs> they still just need to grow. And so, and then to even grow, you got to actually train. And I don't know, I think in basketball, especially here, people just don't train. And if they don't train, then what do you expect it? Like, what kind of metrics are you really looking for? So, and I I think I digressed on your question and I apologize, but how do I justify my existence? Mainly ready, readiness to play or or, um, uh, players being available. That's the one thing that it's like, dude, it doesn't matter if I got a guy who got a foot vertical or gained 30 pounds in a summer. That doesn't matter if he's sitting beside me on the bench. Who gives a Frenchman's fuck if they're not on the court? (laughs) Exactly, man. And I know that was a – you know what? I wish I'd have just said that. That would have made that answer a lot shorter. But (laughs) that's exactly right, man. And don't get me wrong. Like performance metrics are important. Like you want to validate your training. But – the, the the metric that matters the most are the guys that are practicing the most and more importantly that are playing the most. What was it? The I can't remember the exact study, but you can, you probably know this. But it was like 10 to 20 years of Premier League soccer. And it was the teams that had the most starters available won more games. Yeah, no shit. Like yeah. great stuff. <laughs> like, you know, like, and that's where, you know, strength and conditioning coaches try to justify themselves by these physical metrics, but in reality, are you actually, are those even performance metrics? Like I, I question that, you know, I don't see direct correlations to the, the reason why I don't see direct correlations in a lot of ways to actual basketball performance, because I still know a lot of messed up kids that are really, really weak that never get hurt and play basketball at a high level. Does, does so, this take a lot of, uh, of education of the sport coaches that you work with, because perhaps there are some, there are perceptions from sport coaches that are not well educated in strength and conditioning that a certain metric is is really important for the sport, but you know otherwise as a strength coach, um, is there a degree of, of you know or educational conversation that has to take place between members of, of the staff to make sure that you are on the same page and that you're going to be judging one another by the same numbers rather than he's judging you by a number that you don't think is, is relevant whatsoever. Oh, I see what you're saying now. Yes. A hundred percent. And that's where it's really interesting what you see here in the States. There's not really that conversation. You know what, what the conversation really is, is, Hey, what are the guys bench numbers this summer? Yeah. Like that's, that's their validation. They're like, yeah, oh, okay, yeah, that's yeah. about the bench numbers, you know? And, and that's it when it comes to metrics. You know, for a lot of a lot of sports and especially in basketball, it's like, OK, they, they, they hang on the one one output. Uh, for me, I, the only outputs I care about is practice loads and, and game loads. 
Because at the end of the day, we just got to reverse engineer the game of basketball. If we don't reverse engineer the game of basketball and see what it takes to actually play those sports and then train for that, then what are we doing other than just and, – and once again, you have to have some technologies in place and you have to have some things rolling to, to actually validate that. But it, it's funny to see like – I mean all we are is we're not performance coaches. We're general physical preparation specialists as James Smith would say. Like at, at best, that's what we are. Yeah. And so um, anyways, did I dodge your question? No, not at all. No, well, well answered. Um, so you're coming into, is it your second season at Stanford now, right? Yes, sir. So what, what new things are you going to try to bring in and, and push the program forward? Because I know, you know, personally, when I start every season, there's, there's a, a big list of things that I want to try and add to, to what I'm doing. Well, man, I, I'll be honest with you. I'm pumped about a couple of things. Uh, first thing I'm pumped about is... We're going. We're installing Connexon. Are you familiar with that technology? Is is that effectively like an indoor GPS that works via uh, radio, right? Bingo. That's yeah. it. You explained it way better than I could. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's basically what it is. And so when I talked to Bre- or earlier about reverse engineering the game of basketball, we can actually do that now. We can do that by the style of play we're doing. We can do that by you know, our defensive strategies. And I can actually see the loads that are necessary for us to be. I'm not saying successful, but for at least for us to prepare. Right. Um, and so that that gets me pretty excited because now, you know, instead of just doing conditioning, well, there's a true purpose other than from, you know, an a lactic standpoint or, a, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, you know, are, get, are you training above the game intensity, below at all that kind of stuff? For sure. And, 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 and the thing, especially that I learned this year, I mean, we we, tra- we completely changed our offensive schemes. And so with that being said, the demands it takes to run that type of offense, luckily I had an idea of what we were doing because obviously I'm in the coaches' meetings and I understand what they're trying to get. But, you know, most coaches aren't in those meetings. So last year we were running, you know, kind of like a poor or an old man's offense where guys are like, you know, like setting we're, – we're setting up a chess match. Well, this year we're, we're playing checkers. Yeah. And so, you know, that's going to take a lot more output to do that. And so that's where it's like, oh, man, I'm glad we were in those meetings so we can have these conversations because, man, our preparation's got to be different. But now when we actually have some GPS indoors, we can actually quantify it to a degree where it's like, yeah, we, this is exactly where the guys are on the spectrum. And so that's a, that's a technology I'm really excited about. Uh, the next one is uh, some sweat sensors. Really, really excited about those so I can in real time see what these guys are sweating out. So I'll be on the sideline creating these. Uh, I'll be the hipster bartender, <laughs> these solutions for the guys so they can have uh, so they can refuel um, appropriately. Uh, I'm trying to think anything else. Uh, we're getting some force decks so I'm, I can actually see how they're creating force. So you're going to um, be getting a visit from uh, Daniel Martinez probably then. It, Exactly. Yep. 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 So, you know, it'd be pretty exciting to see, uh, because they're so portable. That's the one thing I think is really cool about them. Um, I can take them almost anywhere. So, um, I got some pretty, uh, you know what, I'll, I'll have to try it before I talk about it, but, um, I got some, we'll uh, we'll catch up in a year. Hey, (laughs) a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Uh, but those are some things that I'm looking forward to for the season. Um, as far as the technologies we're going to implement and then, uh, you know, on that subject, you know what's interesting and you always hear is you have the metrics. You're like, oh, okay, you got to collect data for a year and then you can start implying or applying stuff. Yep. Right? Like, what's the point of that? <laughs> it's, and, and, and I get the point of it, but like, like, you, like me and you were talking about earlier with contracts, like a lot of strength coaches, they, they don't get to live that long. 
Yeah. You know, so you're <laughs> data for who, right? Like, and so when I look at this, I almost want to treat it like we're just doing T scores. Like, I, I want to see it against each other. And I want to see it from a day-to-day standpoint, a week-to-week standpoint, and a month-to-month standpoint. And so, you know, that's where I get excited about some of these other technologies that it's it's really, I, I think I could really make actionable data daily and weekly based off the numbers that I'm seeing. And that's what I get a little excited about, opposed to, you know, some other technologies that are out there that are, everybody's telling you, okay, collect the data for a year, and then you can make some decisions. And it's like, dude, no. <laughs> I need now. Absolutely. So, well, um, you know, mindful of your time, just uh, just wrapping up. Where can where can guys find you online? Uh, yeah, so um, I think m- I post more on Instagram, so you can look me up at uh, slash strength s c h l e s strength. Um, that's where I post a lot of my stuff, and then you know, that's about it. It generally leaks to my Twitter, and uh, it'll link to my Facebook from there. But yeah, most all the uh, uh, the content generally starts at uh, Instagram. Tied with uh, Ryan Horn for number one basketball beard on Instagram. Oh man, that dude! <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, he puts out a lot of a lot of good stuff. Um, and he's a really, really sharp guy, man. He really is. Definitely. Well, cheers, man. I really appreciate this. Thank you for your time. Hey, man. No, I appreciate you. Uh, thank you for having me on. My pleasure.